The following recording is a presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome you to visit our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Good to be in God's house today. I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and open them to the New Testament, again, to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Now, this year, our calendar is quite confused due to this uh, COVID-19 pandemic. In May, we couldn't have our usual Mother's Day luncheon for our ladies. Uh, this past week, we couldn't have our annual Father's Day luncheon, and I couldn't even preach the message that I intended to preach for last week. And that's very disappointing, but all is not lost because the most important thing that we can do, we are able to do, and that is to be in God's house on Sunday to hear the message from God's Word and to worship Jesus Christ. Now today, in the message, I'm going to back up uh, to what I should have been doing last week, or wish I could have done, and that was to preach a Father's Day message. So I'm going to mention Father's today. Uh, the message was originally designed for the men, but I think it's a message that speaks to all of us that we are to to look and act like God. And so I don't think it's going to be very difficult for me to incorporate the entire congregation into the message that I want to bring today uh, so that we all can get something from it. So it's not just for the men, but this is for our ladies and for our children as well. In Genesis at the creation, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. That was a statement made by the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who decided that they would create man with special similarities to God. Now, humans are unlike the rest of God's creation. Uh, we do share some common characteristics with animals. We live in the same environment and we breathe the same air. We both have physical functioning bodies. We both eat food. We both digest food. Men and animals both have physical lives and they die physical deaths. So there are certain similar characteristics in that sense between men and animals. But God didn't say, let us make animals in our image. And he didn't say, let us make animals in our likeness. People are different from animals. Um, that's not going to be the message today about PETA or anything like that. I'm not going to talk about animals in particular. But I want you to understand that the big, huge difference between men and animals is that men, people, are created in the image of God. We're given spiritual life from God. And as the Word of God says... God created man and breathed into him the breath of life. Now, there are many reasons that we couldn't have evolved from animals. The days of creation make it very clear to us. That's probably the major reason that we could come up with. We're not evolved from animals because they were created on separate days from men. It wasn't a long process either. It was a six literal day creation. But God had a special design and purpose for people that is not like animals. And that design characteristic is the image of God. That is to be like God. Not to be God. Let's not make that mistake. But to be like God in special ways. Man was made with the ability to respond to God. We were created with self-consciousness. Created with self-awareness, we were created to think, to make choices, to understand, to understand how we relate to our environment. We were created to have a relationship with God, with all the thoughts, with all the emotions, with, with all the spirituality that goes into that relationship. Now, these are all very important characteristics. All of them are vitally important. This is what separates us from animals, but the most important characteristic is the one that makes us the most like God, and that is we are spiritual creatures created to be holy. We were created to be holy. Now, holiness refers to our moral character. We were created to have a moral character that is like God. 
And it was this good moral character that was destroyed in the fall of man. Man sinned and our moral character became flawed and its goodness was disabled. In fact, this moral character that is like God was killed in the fall. This is what we read in the scriptures when it says that we are dead in trespasses and sin. And that's what Jesus Christ came into the world to restore. He came to resurrect the character of man to bring life to that characteristic that will make us most like God. The redeeming, the redeeming sacrifice at Jesus Christ was not that he might restore our ability to breathe. It was not to restore our self-awareness. It was not to show how we relate to the environment. Although there are plenty of people who think saving the environment is the way to save man. Those were abilities that survived the fall. So Christ didn't come to restore any of that. He came to restore the moral character of man because that character did not survive the fall. The holiness of man was lost. And so Christ came into the world to become a man, to restore that moral character. And he didn't do it by coming here to be a moral example. And I mean, it's not just the fact that Christ lived a righteous life and that you can look at him and you can try to be like him. That's not how he saves us. That's not how we're going to come uh, be able to see God. That's not how we have salvation. He didn't come to show us those things. He came to show us how we can be saved through his sacrificial blood. Now, Jesus Christ is the epitome of all things that are good, and certainly we do want to follow him as a moral example, but we can't be saved by what Christ did and acting like him. No, what we must do is to have God, have Jesus Christ, have the Holy Spirit come into our hearts and to kill that old fleshly nature that we have and to give us ability to live according to a new nature a new nature that is renewed in the image of God. Now, my message today is about how those who are redeemed, once you are redeemed, how you are to live like God. And let me emphasize again that you can't be saved just by trying to live a good life. That won't do it. Trying to follow rules and regulations won't do it. Trying to follow the Ten Commandments won't do it. There must be a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts where we receive Christ as Lord and Savior for us to be saved. So I'm talking about the redeemed because the redeemed are the only ones who can live like God. Now, if you look at the scriptures in 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse number 13, the apostle says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Now my message today is entitled Holy Fathers. Uh, we are trying to expand that a bit by talking about holy people. And when I say holy fathers, I don't want you to be alarmed because I'm not going to speak about the history of the popes today. The pope is not the holy father. Neither is he a holy father. In fact, I don't want to really make anybody mad or open up a whole lot of controversy today, but the pope is probably the most unholy of all because he is antichrist. Uh, you can't be saved by the doctrine that the Pope teaches. But I would like to talk to you today about what a father should be. And if I were to sum up what a father should be, it would be in just one short sentence. And that is a father should be like Christ. Or if I want to use the Trinitarian sense, a father should be like God the Father. Or yet still, ex extending it to the entire congregation, I would say the children of God should live like they are children of the Father. Now today again, I am speaking to saved people, saved people in the church, saved friends that are here today, people that are redeemed. You have a new nature that is given to you in Christ, and so now you are capable of obeying this command that God gave, the command to be holy. 
And I want you to notice that Peter quoted from the Old Testament in Leviticus 14, verse 45, God said, For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. God called his people Israel out of this world and he separated from the nations of the world and he chose them for this purpose to be like him. And so he says, I called you out of Egypt. I called you my people. I am your God. Therefore, you shall be like me. You shall be holy for I am holy. And this is the greatest demand for God's people. It is to be holy, to be like God who is holy. Now, for those of you that attend our Sunday afternoon services, which we're, of course, unable to have now, uh, I remind you of the studies that we have in the tabernacle that in the Old Testament there was a priesthood that was established in Israel. Moses gave God's law to the people, and in this law there was a provision for a formal priesthood. Now, we studied that priesthood, and we learned many, many things about it, but one of the things that we learned was the special clothing that was made for the high priest. Special clothing that he wore that, well, all of it really was to point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And it brings out um, many of the doctrines of the New Testament that we learn about Christ. So the high priest was typical of Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest. And I hope that you remember that the high priest wore a mitre. A mitre is a hat. And he wore this white linen hat. And on this linen hat, there was a golden headband. And etched into the gold were this, was this inscription. Make America great. Uh, now, I don't want to be flippant about this, but it does serve a point that sadly, there are many conservative Christians, and I think most of us in here would say we are conservative Christians. Uh, there are many who conflate America and the Constitution with what it means to be godly. And so many have taken the Constitution and put it on the same level as the Scriptures, and they live by the Constitution instead of the Bible. And I'll tell you, you can't do that. Because there are some things that are granted to us, some rights in the congregation, or rather in the Constitution, that are granted to us that Christians ought not to do. I'm not going to get into those today. If you want to know something about that, ask me later. But there are some things in our Constitution that it's not wise for us to do as Christians, that we should pass on some of the rights that we we absolutely proclaim, and we're going to protest if we don't have these rights. Some of them need to be passed on in order for to maintain the peace that Christians are to maintain. But the inscription on this headband by the high priest was one that pointed to God, and the inscription said, Holiness... To the Lord. On the head where the high priest thinks, on his head where the mind operates according to the moral character, there is always this constant reminder that God requires holiness. Now, here's an interesting thought, I think, that before God gave the law, there wasn't this formal priesthood. There, there was no, no law that was given, such as Moses gave the children of Israel, so there was no formal priesthood. And yet, without that formality, there was still a priest. Before the formal law, the father of the family was the family's priest. It was the father who directed the worship of the holy God. And as a priest, the father of every family was expected to be holy. You say, well, how does he know this? Where does he get that? Well, the Bible explains that the law was written on the human heart. That the law of God was there on the sixth day of creation when God created Adam. Adam knew that he was supposed to obey God. God told him what to do, which shows that Adam had responsibility to obey. Adam had a law to obey, and that law didn't go away after he fell from his innocent state. No, it's true. The law has always been written on the human heart. And so before there was a formal priesthood in Israel, it was the fathers who shouldered the burden of being the priest for the family and directing the family in obedience and sacrifice. And that informal priesthood has never gone away. 
It didn't go away when the law incorporated the formal priesthood. I mean, the written law, because the Bible still commanded that fathers were to diligently teach their children to teach God's statutes to them so they would be holy. They were taught the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, obey the commandments which I command you. Hear, O Israel, diligently teach these commandments to your children. And that informal priesthood is still with us today. Christian families have fathers who are to teach their children to be holy. And then might I also say that this priesthood is accentuated in the New Testament because there it tells us that every believer is a priest. Now, we don't believe in women preaching in the church. There is no formal pastorate for women. But everybody who is a believer in Jesus Christ is a priest to God. It's our duty to obey God and to be like him. And I would say how much more fathers that under the New Testament system are doubly ordained to be priests. They are commanded to obey God because of their position in the family and also the fact that they are the children of God. And so they are to teach the commandments to their children. This is a responsibility that can't be abolished. It's a responsibility that you can't opt out of. Men are to be heads of the household and they are to teach their children to be holy as God is holy. I remember several years ago that we had some members that left our church and I had some discussions with them about what is it that makes you unhappy and why would you want to leave church and they really couldn't nail down any specific reasons, and so we kind of went round and round and round on several issues, many things that I thought were just nonsensical. But they finally settled on this as their reason. They were upset because of holiness. These were folks who thought that they were more holy than the rest of the church. And what they had done is they were stuck on the externals, And they didn't understand what true holiness is. They didn't understand, I don't think, that holiness is a disposition of the mind. That holiness is internal and it affects all avenues of our thinking and performance. Now we think about this word holy. What does it really mean to be holy? Well, holy is a word that's often used in the Bible. It's one of the most common words. Our King James Version translates the biblical languages 611 times using the word holy. In church, we use the word often. We use it in preaching, in our singing. We use it in praying. And then sometimes outside of the church, we use the word. But when we do, it's always in a religious context. Sometimes we call people holy. But we don't mean it as a compliment. We say, well, you are holier than thou. And what do we mean by that? Well, we mean you're hypocritically holy. Some are said to be puritanically holy. That's not a favorable comment. Although this world would be a much better place if we practiced the holiness of the Puritans. Sometimes we visualize holiness. And our visualization of it is a description of certain people. Like maybe perhaps the Pentecostal holiness groups where women don't wear makeup, they don't cut their hair, they don't wear, wear, wear pants. Uh, and they may be sincere in those, those beliefs, but that is not what holiness means. And so I think these people that left our church were thinking more along those lines. They had a picture of the outward appearance, and they used the outward appearance to determine holiness. But I'll remind you that the Word of God says that God looks on the heart. And you can do a great deal to clean up everything that's outside of you and not be holy on the inside. Now, in this message, I want to explore holiness from two perspectives. First, we're going to examine God's holiness, and then we'll discuss what it means for us to be holy. Now, first in your outline is that holiness is God's chief attribute. Holiness is the principal characteristic of God's nature. Now, for those of you who are maybe a little bit more theological than others and uh, you're keeping score, uh, we're talking about God's attributes. Well, what are God's attributes? What is that? Well, an attribute is a characteristic of God that makes him what he is, and without it, he couldn't be God. 
When we talk about holiness, holiness is the aggregation of all the ways that God's attributes are exercised. In Scripture, you'll find that there are many titles that are given to God. There are many words that are used to describe Him and describe His nature. The Bible says that God is light. It says that God is love. It says that God is merciful. You'll find names like God is Jehovah Jireh. That means that he is our provider. Or God is El Shaddai. That means that he is the almighty God. So you find these many names and titles of God in the scriptures. But of all the descriptions that are given of God, the one that appears the most often is this one. That God is holy. I often refer to Isaiah's vision of God. And do you know the outstanding characteristic that drew Isaiah's attention? As he was allowed to peer into God's throne room, there were special angels that were there and they surrounded the throne. And it seems that they had just one job to do, and that was to declare God's holiness. In Isaiah 6 verse 3, it talks about these angels and it says, And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. The same is repeated in the New Testament in John's vision of God's throne room. This is Revelation 4 verse 8, a scene in heaven. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him. The beast here refers to these living creatures or angels. The four beasts had each of them six wings about him. And they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty which was and is and is to come. And this is not really a part of my message, but as I was just looking at that scripture, I want to comment on this when it says that they were full of eyes. That means the eyes are symbolic of wisdom. They were full of wisdom, and the wisdom that they have is that God is holy. Above all, he is holy. The angels say that he is holy. The scriptures say that he is holy. The nature of this entire universe says God is holy. And so you've heard that many times. You've heard it in many ways. But do you really understand what that means to be holy? The Hebrew word in the Old Testament is kodesh. It means to set apart. The New Testament word is hagios, which is the same root word from which we get sanctified. Same word is consecrated. And it basically means to be separate, to be distinct, to be different. For instance, God has given us this book. This is the book that we read and we study. And this is the Holy Bible. Now here on the spine of my Bible, it says Holy Bible. On yours, it may be printed on the front. But whenever you put the word holy in front of Bible, it tells you there's something distinct about this book. Now, the part Bible, when you say Bible, that's a word. comes from uh, the Greek Biblia. Uh, It means the books. That's all it means is just the books. But you put holy in front of that. And now it's completely different from any other book. It's a book above and separate from all other books. There is no book that is like this book. And anybody who reads and believes the Bible knows that the scriptures, there is nothing like the Holy Bible. In Jerusalem, they built a temple. And in scriptures, it's referred to as the Holy Temple. Because it was the only building that was officially set apart for the worship of the one true God. And so when we say that God is holy, we're saying that God is totally unique. That there's nothing like him. That he is separate. That he stands apart from everything in this universe. He is the one. The one. And there is none who is like him. Now this is the reason that we don't attend interfaith meetings We can't say, oh, God is holy, but it's okay if you pray to Allah. We can't say that because only Jehovah God is holy. Only God, Jehovah God is separate, distinct, and unique. And it's really something that you ought to remember every time that you use the name of God, that you remember how special that God is, that there is nothing like him, and you ought ought never to use God's name in a trivial way. There is no name that's like the name of God because God is holy. 
And so when we speak of our holy God, it always also carries with it the meaning of one who provokes veneration and awe, that he is frightening beyond belief. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 89, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. And this is what you do when you respect the holiness of God. You revere him. And so you would never use his name commonly and disparagingly. God's commandments reflect the veneration of that holiness when it says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That's the third commandment. And I think many times that must be the lost commandment because that one is so often abused. You listen to language today, it's horrible. We don't kill people because we're commanded not to do it. We don't rob banks because we're commanded not to do it. We don't commit adultery with our neighbor's wife, or we shouldn't, because we're commanded not to do it. Those are all things that are on the list. But what about God's name? What does the Bible say about his name? There is a commandment about his name, and it's in the top of the list that establishes the righteous character of God and demands our respect. God is holy. When I was growing up, we used a Baptist hymnal in our church. The first song in the hymnal was holy, holy, holy. And I've always thought that is just an appropriate way to start a hymn book, isn't it? Song number one, holy, holy, holy. Our worship, our singing, our preaching, our praying, all of it is first to God alone who is perfectly holy. He is different, he is separate, he is distinct, he is set apart from all others. God's holiness and his perfection is the highest order of righteousness so that his moral character is the standard for all. He is above all in holiness. And to be like him is the greatest aspiration of those that are created in his image. So now I hope you have a little bit understanding, better understanding of holiness. Everything about God is measured in holiness. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy justice. His love is holy love. Even his punishment is holy punishment. Everything about God reflects his holiness. So it's no wonder that the high priest that reflected Jesus Christ was commanded to work in holiness and that he would have a miter on his head with an inscription that said, Holiness to the Lord, because that, folks, is the banner under which he operated. And so you can see the standard is high. The standard can't be reached unless God is working in us. We must have his Holy Spirit in us to be sanctified holy. Well, what does the Bible say then about our holiness? Does it say, well, you know, you don't have to be too concerned about it. Don't be so much concerned about holiness because by everything that I've just said, you can't reach it anyway. God is separate. He's unique. He's distinct. He's above all others. There is no one like God. So how can you be like God? How can you be holy? Well, that might be a reasonable objection. But notice that the apostle says here in the 15th verse, But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy. In all manner of conversation. That means in every aspect of your life. Why? Because, he gives the reason, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. Because it is written. Because it is written. That is the same as saying, God said it because it came from God's word. And when God says it, you must do it. God is holy. And if he saves us to have fellowship with him, what else would he expect? but for us to be holy. Now, number two, holiness is our conformity to God's character. The mitre inscribed with holiness to the Lord always reminded the priest of God's expectations. Now, in our text, Peter gives practical advice on how to reflect God's holiness in our lives. So starting in verse number 13, he gives us five practical means of holiness. Five practical means. And I'm I'm looking at that, I'm thinking right now, ahead of you. You're not going to get out of here in an hour. Uh, So I'm going to hurry as fast as I can, okay? 
and I'll, and I'll give you five ways. You know, you only get one service a week, so bear with me a little bit. The first of these five ways is preparation of the mind. Holiness involves your mind. In verse 13, he says, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. That's a strange expression for us. Gird up the loins of your mind. Holiness begins with an attitude, and gird up your loins simply means prepare yourself for action. Now, in Peter's time, people wore long flowing robes, and if they wanted to run, they had to pull up their robes, and they would tuck them into a belt or a sash to hold the robe in place so they wouldn't trip over it. So Peter means it this way. If we want to put it into our common vernacular today, we would say, roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves. Prepare your mind to work towards holiness. The mind refers to our spiritual consciousness. The mind is the place of decisions where thought processes determine what you will do. The mind controls your emotions. The mind determines your attitude. Peter is here speaking of our relationship to the Lord, and we must be fully persuaded in our minds that whatever we do, whatever we decide on, whatever it is, we must be fully persuaded in our minds that we will promote God's will, that we will promote God's gospel, that our activities as the children of God are those of his kingdom. And so fathers and mothers, you must guard your minds. You, you must put all temptations to do evil out of your minds. David said, I will set no wicked thing before my eyes. And he meant that I will struggle to keep my mind clear. I will avoid anything that turns my thoughts from holiness. Paul used similar expressions when he talked about girding and guarding your mind, though in a different way. He said in Philippians 4 verse 8, Thinking about the thought process, what should you do? He says, well, finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. These are the things that occupy our mind. Honesty, justice, purity, lovely things, things of good report, virtues. Think on these things. And so we must guard our minds against worldly influences. The devil has an arsenal of corruption that he throws at us in a constant barrage. And those things that he, he uses against us are the very things that the sinful flesh craves. And so you have people who say, well, if I'm going to do that, I can't be happy. I will never be happy if I have to give up all those vices, all these sinful cravings and lusts that I have that rule my life. I'll never be happy without those. I want you to listen to what A.W. Tozer wrote. He said, the emphasis of the New Testament is not upon happiness. Let me pause. Don't complain so much about happiness because the Bible doesn't emphasize your happiness. It emphasizes your holiness. The emphasis of the New Testament is not upon happiness but holiness. God is more concerned with the state of people's hearts than with the state of their feelings. Go to God and tell Him that it is your desire to be holy at any cost. And then ask Him to make you holy whether you are happy or not. Be assured that in the end you will be as happy as you are holy. But for the time being, let your whole ambition be to serve God and be Christ-like. Holiness starts with your mind. You must desire holiness and put everything that you are into its pursuit. And if you are truly a born-again Christian, if you do have that new nature in you that perhaps you claim to have, then it will be your desire because God gave that to you in your new birth. He gave you a divine nature, and that divine nature is God's nature, and that nature will always desire holiness. And it won't be happy without holiness. The second means to holiness is the bent of our will. Another unusual expression. This is a theological term when we talk about the bent of our will. Now, the next part of verse 13 says, be sober. Let's not be confused by the language. 
We usually think of soberness as being the opposite of drunkenness. That when you're sober, you're not drunk. And that's good godly advice. But this word is not about drunkenness. It relates to the exercise of self-control. It's related to the concept of drunkenness because that's what drunkenness is. It's a loss of control. Now here it means not to let temptations overcome you. We're not to let our passions control us. That is the evil natural passions that arise from the old man that should have been crucified with Christ when you believe. The will is that part of you that controls what you do. Now the doctrine of the will is what we call its bent. It's the predilection to act in a certain way. That is our bent. And the will of the unregenerate person is always bent towards sin. The will is always towards sin and always away from God. And the natural man can never escape the corruption of his will. And so in order to do that, we must have God work in our hearts. There must be a blessing of regeneration that changes the natural bent that turns the desire of the will to a godly direction. And that is the first act of being changed, and that act always leads to repentance and faith. We act differently from the will of the sinful nature, and we act according to the new nature that has been implanted by regeneration. Now, if you don't understand regeneration, perhaps you understand this better. Born again. That's what being born again is. It's being regenerated. So simply put, when you are regenerated or born again, you are able to escape the bondage of sin. So no longer do you need to live in that corruption of sin. And now you are enabled to live in the righteousness of Christ. But be sure that your sinful nature is still there. You're a child of God. You're saved. You know this. Your sinful nature is still there. It still plagues you. And it won't be gone until we receive our glorified bodies. And so it means every day of your life, there will be a constant struggle with sin. Every day there is a battle with sin. And this is the reason that we have a command to be holy. If there was no struggle, there's no need to have a command to fight against sin. Even the great apostle Paul dealt with his old nature, which he explains vividly in Romans chapter 7. He said, there is a war that's going on inside of me. He said, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. Paul struggled with sin and so will you. How do you fight that? Well, Paul's advice, his command is crucify the flesh with all of its affections and lusts. We learn to control our passions. That's not easy. It's not easy to do. And so you're a fool if you think that you can expose yourself daily to every sin that comes and goes, everything going, and not be affected by it. Here's some good news. When you conquer one of these evil influences, there is strength that is gained to fight the next one. This is what we call God's spiritual training. As you keep defeating sin and Satan, you increase your strength. And I can tell you, this means nothing other than increasing in holiness. That's what we're talking about. Now, the third means to holiness is the hope of our future. Apostle goes on and says, And hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a wonderful part of the verse because holiness involves your future. Based on God's grace, you have a future that will be lived in holiness. Now, literally, the last part of the verse translates this way. Until the end of your life, have perfect confidence in the grace of Christ. Hope. Hope is defined as positive expectation. And the source of our hope is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Titus 2.13, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing Of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Can you think of reasons that Jesus taught his disciples in the model prayer to say, Thy kingdom come? I've told you before that one of my prayers every morning is for Christ to come. If you lived in my house with the things that we're going through, my wife and I together pray for this. I sure wish Christ would come. 
I sure wish that he would come because when he comes, we'll be delivered from this present evil world. We'll be delivered from sorrows, from sicknesses, all the things that we see going on in the world today. It'll all be gone when Christ comes. But most of all, as I think about that, I think that I, I, I don't want to be forever encumbered by sin. I don't want to fight this fight forever. This is tiring. It's difficult. It's hard to live the Christian life. I don't want to struggle with my passions and constantly battle the flesh. I don't want to live forever in this world of turmoil. And when Christ comes, this robe of flesh that houses my spirit will be dropped and I will be like Christ in holiness. So what is that prayer about when Jesus said, Thy kingdom come? It's this very thing. The sum of that prayer is holiness. To be like Christ. That's what happens when He comes. To be sinless. To be like the holy God. Holiness to the Lord. Always and only holiness. That's our future expectation. That is a positive expectation. I know it will happen when Christ comes. My hope is to be free from sin and perfect in holiness. Now the next means is the measure of our conduct. The measure of our conduct. When I interview young people about their faith, when they first come to Christ, and before we take them to baptism, I always ask, I always ask them about sin. I ask them, do you understand sin? And I ask, are you miserable when you sin and when you've done wrong, do you have a feeling in you that there's something there that must be made right? And if they don't answer that correctly, I know that they don't yet understand what it means to know Christ. Now, when a child believes, it seems like the first thing that comes into his mind, he can't wait to get over there into the baptistry. Why? Well, he knows that, that he's doing something holy. It's something that Jesus commanded. Now, he may not understand all about holiness. He might not even understand the terms, but he does know what God expects. Because when you get saved, God expects obedience. And that knowledge of God's expectation never leaves a Christian from the very beginning to the end of his life. He knows, I'm expected to obey God and I want to obey God. Verse 14 is about conduct. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. This is the most difficult part. Holiness involves acting differently from those who are not followers of Jesus Christ. Holiness will make you an oddball. You won't fit in. The trouble with holiness is that it makes you different and you don't fit in. You stick out like a sore thumb. You're, you, some are confused about this. And they say, well, now that I'm holy, that means I need to stick it in the eye of those who aren't as holy as me. If you don't live by my standard, you can't possibly be holy. And that makes people mean-spirited and uncompassionate. Finally, it causes them to wrap up their entire Christianity in their, in theirs, and others' outward appearance. And it becomes so central to their theology, they scarcely think of anything else. And so while they judge holiness by those things, they become completely unholy in their own conduct. Now don't mistake, how we look is important. And I don't mean to minimize that importance, but holiness goes much deeper than that. Holiness makes you different, but I'll say this, it doesn't make you weird. Now it certainly is a radical change of lifestyle. It's a change to be different from what you are and different from others. But folks, that difference is a good difference. To be holy doesn't mean that you need to shave your head. It doesn't mean that you need to pull a cross around the streets. There's no need for you to take a vow of celibacy. There's no need for a vow of poverty or a vow of silence or you don't need to move into a monastery. Being holy means to live such a God-filled life of kindness and gentleness and compassion that your life becomes winsome to others. That people love to be around you because you reflect one of the highest principles that any person could ever reflect. And that is, love your neighbor as yourself. That is the character of God. Now you think about Jesus' life for a minute. You know who liked Jesus? It was the common people. Jesus moved in and out among sinners. So the Bible says the common people heard him gladly. You know who didn't like Jesus? The religious people. 
Can you imagine this? They thought Jesus is not holy enough. And what were they concerned about? Oh, they're concerned about the clothes. They're concerned about the formalities. They're concerned about food you eat and you don't eat. They believe that washing your hands before eating, that's a sign of conformed holiness. And while they worried about those things, they had no love and compassion for anybody but them. Do you understand that there are many hurting people, especially amid this virus, and if you don't care about them as Jesus cared, you are not holy no matter how much you say you are, no matter what you wear. What does God require? Inner holiness. Micah 6 verse 8 says, He has showed thee, O man, what is good. And what doth the Lord require of thee? But to do justly and to love mercy. And to walk humbly with thy God. The phrase in that statement that says to love mercy means faithful love in action to your fellow man. Isn't that a reflection of God? Be different. But be different in such a way that you're not obnoxious to your fellow man. Your conduct must change. And instead of your one desire to please you, think about what you can do for others. And so to reflect God's holiness, we must be different in our conduct. So different that we are Christ-like. And when inward holiness is solved, then outward conformity will be more than a false facade. Now lastly, a means of holiness is reverence. The reverence in our fear. Holiness involves fear of God. Now let's add on the 17th verse. And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. What is your motivation for holiness? Well, Peter takes us back to the definition of holiness that involves veneration and awe of God, that God is frightening beyond belief. We fear God with reverential fear. And that's not fear of being slapped down and cast into hell when we make a mistake. That can never happen to a Christian because we're free from condemnation. We are forever justified by our faith in Christ. Now we know in this life we'll fall short. And it'd be miserable to live always in the fear of punishment. So this is not that kind of fear. God disciplines his children, but he doesn't punish them for their sin because their sin was taken care of at the cross in Jesus Christ. Our outlook for sin, uh, uh, towards sin is change. Christ's blood, Christ's cross cleanses us. And then out of respect for this great sacrifice that he made for us, we will not tempt God. We honor God. And we don't serve him even out of fear of chastisement. We do it because our attitude about sin itself has changed. Our bent that I mentioned a minute ago, our bent has changed. And there's now a holy disposition to the mind. We recognize the power of God. We recognize his right to command. And listen, he's not the man upstairs. Lose that phrase from your vocabulary. He is holy God. And so we obey him. Now, respecting God in holiness is inseparably united to obedience. We must be holy people of God, holy fathers and mothers, because one day we will be judged by the Lord. We'll not be judged for sin. As I said, that judgment was taken at the cross. But we will be judged for how we have improved Christian graces in our lives. How we have improved Christian graces in our lives. So fathers, you're going to be judged for what kind of priest you are to your family. Were you a holy Christian? Were you a holy father? When people observe you, is your holiness so obvious that it's like a golden miter on the head of the high priest? Peter emphasized priesthood in the second chapter of 1 Peter 2.9. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So do you get this? Men, you are priests. Fathers, you are doubly a priest. You might not wear a frock. You may not turn your collar around backwards. But nonetheless, you are a priest. You represent Jesus Christ. And what does God require a priest? Holiness. Like a priest of the Old Testament... Your holiness must be as obvious 
as the golden plate on the white mitre. Now in the Old Testament, there was a bloodline that qualified a person as a priest. The priests were Levites descended from Aaron. And as a believer in Jesus Christ, you also have a bloodline. And that is that you are spiritually descended from Jesus Christ. You are sons of God. And thus that priesthood isn't optional. No one can opt out of the responsibility of priesthood. And you may fall. You may stumble along the way. And you will. It'll take some effort to work out all of these areas. But you need to be assured of this. That all this effort is not yours. The Holy Spirit is there to work in you. To help you to progress in sanctification. And now you can just kind of sum everything up with this so that you understand it very well. This is what sanctification is. What is the doctrine of sanctification? It is to be made holy as God is holy. Holiness is an attitude of the mind. It is an act of the will. It's a positive hope. It's righteous in conduct. It is reverential fear of God. Now, as I look over our congregation, most of our men are older. You don't have small children at home to mentor. But that doesn't mean that your children have stopped looking to you and stopped looking to mothers for guidance and example. Fathers need to be a refuge of holiness for their children no matter how old they are. They still need your example. And what our church needs is church families with fathers and mothers that are holy. The scripture says that the aged men are to be sober, they are to be serious, they're to be dignified and self-controlled, they're to be sound in the faith, steadfast in the faith. In other words, they are to be holy. And this is the sum of the message today. Hebrews twelve fourteen, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time that we've spent in your word today. Father, I ask that we would be followers of you, that we would be holy. Fathers and mothers, young people, children, that we all would know you as Savior and follow you in holiness to obey the command that is given in the scriptures. And so if we are to be the people that we should be, if we are to be the Christians that we should be, we can't ignore this command because this is what makes us what we are in our salvation. We are made like you. And any time that we don't act like you, then we disparage the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to be a holy people. We give you the praise and the honor for all things that are done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Brian Baptist Church of Roner Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Brian Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Roner Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us online at www.brianbaptist.com. Be Baptist dot org.